I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Hello, everybody, and welcome to uh, this evening's event, which is in honour of Faber's 80th birthday celebrations. My name is Claire, and I'm delighted to introduce Claire Wigfall and Sarah Hall, both of whom are Faber authors and who will both be talking tonight from their respective debuts. One is a novel and one is a collection of short stories. Before we start, I ought to point out that Gordon Byrne was due to join us this evening, but unfortunately has been forced to drop out. So I apologise in advance if I call Claire or Sarah or Gordon. I don't mean anything by that at all. I'd like to begin by talking a little bit about the books that we'll be discussing this evening. Claire Wigfall's debut, Collection of Short Stories, The Loudest Sound and Nothing, was published in 2007. It's an extraordinary collection, it's both bold and subtle, and it rose through an extraordinary variety of locations, from a Scottish island to, a, to 19th century France to a Hollywood party. For all their vivi- vividly executed scenarios, each story is concerned with something much quieter. Nearly every character is searching for something that they've lost. Sarah Hall's debut novel, Horsewater, meanwhile, is set in her native Lake District, in the small village of Mardale in the 1930s. It's loosely inspired by a real event, the building of a dam further up the valley, that flooded the village and forced the inhabitants to relocate. It's mainly concerned with the unstoppable forces of industrialisation on a rural community, and it's absolutely anchored in the landscape of the lakes. It feels almost hewn from the soil and the rock, and it too, in a sense, is imbued with a very real sense of impending loss. Anyway, that's enough from me. I think Sarah's going to start by reading an extract from Horsewater. Can everyone hear me okay? Back. The mics are not very good. Oh, right. Nobody heard a word. Is that better? (laughs) Can you hear me at the back okay? Yeah? Okay. Throw things at me if you can't. (laughs) Okay. um, I'll just give you a very brief background about Horsewater. Thank Mm -hmm. you for that introduction, that sums the book up very nicely. Um, The novel's set in the years of 1936 and 1937, um, and it is based on um, a factual account of building of the dam. It is very much fiction. The the story really revolves around a local family, the Lightburn family, um, who uh, hear the news that the farm tenancy that they have with the local estate is about to be revoked, as are all the other tenancies in the valley, and they're going to have to leave um, Mardale. So um, I'm just going to read a short extract from the beginning of the novel. This uh, concerns the heroine, I suppose, of the book, who's a woman called Janet Lightburn. And um, the passage I'll read from um, is when she's uh, a young girl and she's uh, helping out on the farm with her father. She's a fairly kind of willful... Uh, girl um, used to the outdoor life, used to kind of pitching in, mucking in at the farm. Uh, She's going to go on to become probably the only voice of protest um, when the villagers are told that they're going to have to leave their homes. Okay. She was eight years old and Samuel had already begun to suspect that there were things at work in his daughter a man should be wary of. At times, if he concentrated hard, He thought he could hear a low growl coming from a region of her chest, like the sound of snow about to move off a mountain in large pieces, as if she was tempered wrong. Her ways were not in keeping with her youth or her sex. She was seldom frightened as a small child will be during a new experience, and she had developed a disturbing habit of staring at things, staring clear into them so that her eyes never dropped during chastisement or argument. Her mother noticed this too, felt her face being eaten by that look as she chided her daughter for the carelessness with which she brought filth into the house. Often she bit her lip and clenched a hand at her side as if preparing to slap the stare away, though Ella never laid an ill hand to her child. 
The pair butted heads like two rams on a narrow bridge as they met in conversation. Janet would not swallow God like her daily liver oil. She wanted to be shown his evidence, as if he were worms in the ground that would come up through loose soil seeking solid during the rain. She wanted her proof, a telescope to locate him in the darkness. An uneasy tension grew between them, as if they were both in themselves too charged, too magnetic to be in a room together as if their forces would push against each other like invisible gravity from separate poles and damage the delicate balance of the known world. So their time took the form of brief intervals, both understanding that this, to be, this was the only way. That morning of her father's remembering, Janet had wanted to come and move the cows as she usually did, but she was running a slight fever. Measles was spreading through the children of the adjoining Shap and Bampton Valleys and her mother was worried that it had now reached Mardale. Ella was acquainted with fevers of many varieties, and the ones heralding trouble came with characteristics gently different from those of a simple head cold, a slight discoloration in the sweat along the temples, the eyes laboring between focus and vacancy. Influenza and child killers made subtle alterations within the body's subtext of heat. But the girl was up and dressed at five o'clock, and would not hear of going back to bed and riding the fever out in comfort. She would not be talked into sickness. She would not be nursed. In truth, it may have been only exasperation over her daughter's stubbornness that allowed her mother to let her go. Get out of my sight then, lass, she said, turning from the bold gaze of the small, fevered face. And the maternal anger was stored away later, for, for a later time. It was more than just a blustery autumnal morning, her father remembers, because the wind and the leaves of the great sycamores by Misand Hall was threatening sombre repercussions in the brown darkness. There were invisible ills going on, he knew it, slates being loosened, fencing being rocked out of its foundation. The roses, newly planted in front of the cottage, must have been coming away from their crutches. He could hear foliage creaking and bending, the land of the valley itself was distressed. Samuel held a lantern, which was flickering and threatening to blow out, and would probably not last for the duration of the task, so he set it back in the shed, extinguished. Without the distraction of light, the surrounding murk became accessible to the eye. His daughter came out of the farmhouse towards him. She had on a pair of boys' breeches, which suited better the work of these early mornings. She was dressed warmly, but as he laid a hand on her head, he found that her hair was damp with sweat along her brow and she was shivering. He asked her again, would she go inside? No, she would not. With the absence of a lantern, navigation of the path down to the paddock was a question of relied upon familiarity and concentrated vision. The daylight that morning was faltering. The clouds were racing across the sky. They set off down the lane. Samuel had a rope with him, wound in coils over his shoulder. Heavy wind in the valley often sent cattle and horses wild. They would take off in whatever direction the gusting force propelled them, filled with a frantic spirit. If this was the case, they would, if they would need to be bound round the neck and calmed, kept close. His daughter was walking next to him, her pace quickening as she was blown a little forward from time to time. Samuel noticed the moving form first. A shape that was out of accord with the surrounding scenery had movement unrelated to the wind. Then he recognized the density of withers, the curve of horn. A bullock had loosened itself from a nearby field by trampling down an old section of wall. Samuel saw it coming up the path towards them, bucking up its hind legs and cutting the rough air with its head. He gave his daughter a savage push to the side. Quick lass, get up that tree. The animal picked up its trot as it saw them. It shook its head and snorted. Janet had reached the rowan tree and climbed halfway up it within seconds, moving like a startled cat. She called for her father to join her, but he was standing his ground, removing the rope from his shoulder. He quickly fastened a noose at the end of it. The bullet continued forward, and as it did so, Samuel tried to skirt it and come at it from the side, where there would be no horns, no hind legs to wrestle with. But the animal was twisting to face him, 
its thick packed muscle shifting under its skin. There was no chance of getting the rope around its neck head on. After almost a full circle, the bullock had him trapped against the rowan. It butted him twice, the horns finding his left forearm. From the low branches of the tree, his daughter saw the blood starting there, dark red through his torn shirt, snaking down his fingers. Samuel had his right hand on a horn and he was trying to pull the animal down. His left arm hung at his side, dripping and fractured. He tries to remember the next part of the dreamlike sequence accurately, but there's an unreal quality which is hard to qualify. It was only a moment later that he heard a cry, a throaty half growl, half hiss, and then there was a flash of yellow down from the branches of the tree onto the neck of the bullock and off, bringing enough weight against the animal for its head to drop with shock. He quickly slipped the rope over the neck of the dazed beast, looped it around the tree. After a few tugs against the binding, the bullock became subdued. For a moment, Samuel thought it had been a lynx which had leapt down from the tree, a rare and fantastic creature. Only the corner of his eye had caught it, and the morning light was stormy at best. Until he turned and saw the cub of his daughter lying on the ground, with torn breeches and a deep puncture in her head which was beginning to spill. By the time father and daughter had reached the shap surgery in the Hindmarsh's Old Morris, their wounds had nearly stopped bleeding. But the puncture, unlike the gash on the arm, had been too obscure a shape to stitch closed. And Dr. Saul Frith had been more concerned with the girl's measles than he had the damage done to her head. He was less interested in tales of bravery than he was concerned with a potentially lethal epidemic, he told them. Okay, that was really beautifully read, Sarah. Thank you. Um, we were talking earlier about how the really nice thing about having written stories is that when you do readings, you can actually read something in its entirety. Um, and originally, when Gordon was going to read, we were given a five-minute slot. Um, and I, my editor was laughing at me this morning because I've got all my stories recorded on my mobile phone, or, or the times are recorded on my mobile phone. So I was able to say, okay, yes, this is a five-minute story. But now we've got a little bit more time, so you're going to get an eight-minute story now. <laughs> so let me just find it. It's a story called um, A Return Ticket to Epsom. And I can say to you now that there's, there's a photograph mentioned in it, which... It's always interesting for me to tell, to find out afterwards the people who actually know it and identify, you know, when I've talked with readers, you say, oh, I know that photograph, and I'm sure probably a lot of people do. The photograph from uh, the suffragette who killed herself at Epsom um, threw herself in front of the king's horse. But, uh, yeah, so it's interesting that some people have picked that up. Right. So... A return ticket to Epsom. There was a small mirror above the bathroom sink, and she was leaning over to look at herself in it, one hand catching her short hair behind her left ear. What do you think of me? She called out to him through the open doorway. I think you're drunk. He was lying on his back on the bed, still wearing his shoes. His eyes were closed. Beneath his V-neck sweater, he wore an Oxford shirt unbuttoned at the collar. Both his hair and clothes smelt strongly of cigarette smoke. I was hoping for something a little more. The end of her sentence was lost as she bent over and turned on the cold tap. She rinsed her face, then walked through the doorway, the water dripping to her collar. Halfway across the room, she stopped. But hey... Really? Do you think I'm crazy? He let out a groan and rolled over so that he could lift himself on one elbow. Why is it that you girls who hang out in bars wearing turtlenecks with copies of Sartre on the table? Hess, she corrected. He couldn't help himself smiling. She was standing on the carpet in the low light of the lamp, wearing just a blouse and a pair of pale pink knickers. Her legs were very white. He liked that. So tell me why, he continued. Girls like you with Hess on the table. 
always think you're crazy. You, she said with a smile as she sat on the edge of the bed and began to unbutton her blouse. And why do the boys who pick us up always think they're so bloody clever? He curled his arm about her waist and pulled her onto the bed with him, then began to kiss her, running his hand beneath her unbuttoned blouse and down to the small of her back. She lifted her head so he could kiss along her jawbone. Her hair was cropped very close to her head, like a young boy's. Her bare knees were bent together and resting on his thigh. He pulled her closer to him so her legs straightened and parallel with his own. I'm not going to sleep with you, she said over his forehead. He edged the tip of one finger between the skin of her back and the tight, elastic trim of her bra. The ones with Hess on the table never do, he said. At least not until the second date. Bastard, she laughed, her shoulders shrugging. Can you even remember my name? She pulled away slightly and was lying with one hand resting under her head as she faced him. Paige. Congratulations, she said, pulling a look of mock surprise. Can you remember mine? No, she said inconsequentially. And then she laughed. Actually, I honestly can't. Isn't that funny? I don't really know, he said, looking across his shoulder. Suppressing her smile behind tight lips, she watched him for a moment, then nudged the side of his nose with her own, and he turned back to kiss her. His mouth tasted of alcohol. Her hand was resting loosely upon his own, with the arm angled behind her awkwardly. Despite himself, he was conscious of the faint pressure of her fingers, how they anchored his hand lightly at the curve of her waist. After a while, he leant back against the pillow facing her. Her lips were red from kissing. I'm not so drunk, you know, she said. You're not so sober either. She shrugged, then with a smile reached one hand towards his face and gently, with the tips of her fingers, closed his eyes. When he woke, he f his mouth felt dry and he had a slight erection pressing against his trousers. He'd been dreaming, he realized, a dream that had been forgotten on the instant of waking. He rolled into a seated position with his legs hanging over the side of the bed. He was wearing his shoes and the lamp was still on. His neck felt stiff from having lain cramped beside her on the single mattress. He massaged it now with his hand, then looked to the bedside table for a glass of water. She was still asleep behind him. There was no water beside the bed, just an alarm clock and a small pile of books, one splayed open upon the others. He stared at the turquoise numbers on the clock face until, with a quiet click, the next minute flashed onto the display. It was 0339. He reached for the open book. As he lifted it, a pencil that had been trapped beneath the teepee of pages rolled off the tabletop and fell soundlessly to the carpet. He didn't reach to recover it. Instead, he turned over the book in his hand and began to read from the top of the page. It was in French. She'd underlined the, the words she didn't know. Almost mechanically, his eyes scanned slowly down for them. He'd taken advanced French in his freshman year and knew most of the words she'd marked. Still, she hadn't spoken badly in the bar that evening when the waiter had come to take their bill. He closed the book and put it back on the pile, then yawned. Staring ahead, it surprised him to see something familiar. His watch was sitting on the edge of the desk, a clunky, expensive-looking watch his parents had given him for his 21st birthday, and which he wore with some embarrassment. He must have taken it off before he lay down. The catch sometimes irritated the patch of skin at the inside of his wrist. He rose from the bed, carefully so as not to wake her, and pulling at his right trouser leg, stepped across to the desk and slipped the watch back on his wrist. On the desktop was a sheet of A4 paper, typing paper, a computer printout showing a grainy photograph of a race course, men and women wearing boaters and bustles pressed hard against the rails, 
One horse was about to gallop from the bottom right corner of the frame, another rounding the turn a few metres behind. On the ground between the two lay a dark mass. It could have been a fallen horse, or a body. Underneath the image, as if a note in reminder to herself, was written, they found a return ticket to Epsom in Davison's handbag. Again he glanced at the photograph, but without much interest, then secured his watch and turned back to where she lay. Her back and shoulders were covered by her blouse. The skin at the nape of her neck was prickled where her hair had been shorn close. Upflung across the pillow, the fingers of her right hand curled in a loose fist. He could hardly see her face from where he stood, but his eye followed the curve of her hip as it smoothed into the length of her bare thigh. It was very quiet in the room. In the stillness of that moment, what struck him suddenly was how easy it would be for him to do exactly what he wanted. He almost laughed at the simplicity of it. This girl on the bed, she didn't even know his name. For a full minute, he remained where he was, watching the girl. Then abruptly he turned and moved across to the small bathroom. A light hung above the mirror. He flicked the switch and stared at his reflection, unsmiling. His eyes looked tired. After a few minutes, he took a green plastic tooth mug from the shelf and emptied out her toothbrush and a tube of toothpaste, then filled the mug with water and drank. He drank three cupfuls before he placed the mug back on the shelf and wiped his mouth with the back of his hand. Turning, he lowered the toilet seat cover and sat upon it. Through the open doorway, he could see her white legs stretched out upon the bedsheets. Both Sarah and Claire have bucked the prevailing notion that debut novelists tend, on balance, to write about what they know. Both, you've both, um, to varying degrees, I think, performed acts of literary ventriloquism by inhabiting people and places far removed from yourselves and your personal experience. And I wanted to start by asking you, Claire, really, to what extent this liberated you as a first-time writer and the extent to which it informed your later work. Okay, well, yeah, I mean, it's absolutely true. The, the stories in my book, they take on many different voices and go to many different places. Um, and I suppose for me, writing is... The, I've never been interested in writing about myself because that's not why I write. I, mean, I very much write to escape from my real life and to imagine myself somewhere else and in to imagine what it's like to be someone else living somewhere different and going through different experiences. And so I've just never felt the desire to actually write about my own life. <laughs> um, so, it's, yeah, it's, it was just never something that crossed my mind. Um, and as I say, I, I, I find it very interesting. It's, I mean, I, writing about lots of different places as well, in a way, I've, I've been somebody who's travelled a lot in my lifetime, um, but haven't travelled nearly as much as I would like to have travelled, and there's so many places I would like to go to. And it's sort of a way of sort of satisfying that right. <laughs> wanderlust, yeah, to actually be able to write about this or sort of imagine what it's like. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I think it's, it, for me, it's just much more interesting to, right. to write about that. In terms of how it's affected other work, yeah, I think I'm still doing the same thing. Right. <laughs> I still don't write about myself. Okay. And, um, very occasionally. I mean, there are elements, little things that slip in there that come from my life or come from my experience, but... They're very veiled, and I think most people, unless they knew me extremely well, wouldn't wouldn't actually be able to recognise them at all. Right. Okay. Um, yeah. Would you agree with that, Claire? Yeah, I do. I've never felt the urge to, to, to consciously write about myself. Anyway, I mm. think you know there are certain issues that I'd like to work out on the page. That's not really been interesting, and writing's always been quite a companionable thing for me. And the last person I want company is myself right. in the room because mm. I'd just be sitting there not saying anything to myself. So I always kind of wanted to fill up the pages with characters that were more interesting and, you know, perhaps there are amplifications within particularly some of the female characters of traits that I have, but they're very, they are amplified, they're possibly romanticised, you know, Janet Lightburn, she, 
you know, she's a kind of forthright, um, proactive female, where I'd probably just sit and be cross about right. a large issue like this. She actually kind of gets up and does something about it. Um, having said that, although Horsewater is set in the 1930s, the, uh, the territory that it covers, um, the valley that it's set in is my home valley. Mm -hmm. So I do have a kind of an intimate knowledge with the area uh, mm -hmm. and the kind of farming procedures, even though I didn't come from a farming family, my right. extended family farms. So um, there are, I think, always going to be autobiographical elements within fictions. Mm -hmm. You're possibly not even aware of them as you're mm -hmm. writing them, but I think you're certainly drawing, there's a well in there and you're kind of lowering mm -hmm. down into it. Um, but, but I do I do come back to this idea that writing about yourself is probably not that interesting, yeah. certainly not that interesting right. for me, not it's, consciously. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, I was just going to say, it's interesting what you're saying about that, you know, there's that well of things that come up. I mean, I, w I was very surprised, actually, that when... I finished the collection and actually put all the stories together. There were a lot of themes running through the stories that really weren't intentional. I didn't plan to write a book that had these same themes going through. It just turned out that way, and I hadn't even really noticed them until mm. they were all put together. And, and suddenly you realise, like, gosh, these must be these real preoccupations within myself. And it, it was, yeah, it was slightly disturbing in a way, suddenly actually getting this insight into your, your own psyche that you hadn't sort of acknowledged. And it was a bit, um, I felt more like I was placing more on the page actually about myself. Right, than you realised. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk about landscape, um, and particularly in, in your novel, which I was particularly struck by. I don't know how many of you actually read Horsewater, but it's absolutely, as I was saying, imbued with the landscape of, of the Lake District, and it's obviously a landscape that Sarah knows very well. But I was wondering for you whether you've always had, whether there's always been a sort of physical connection for you between words and landscape. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, and probably the first port of call in terms of landscape and physicality, or at least topography, was um, place names. You know, I, even growing up where I grew up, I, I knew all these small hamlets and villages and mountain names. Mm -hmm. But it, it doesn't take very long for you to realise that these are uh, interesting-sounding names. And so, you know, um, th there were there were sounds, you know, coming from people's mouths when they were talking about the area that uh, had a certain. They were, they hadn't, they, I suppose they were kind of exotic even to me from that area, um, you know, these kind of old Viking names, Anglo-Saxon words, it's all mixed up, they're Celtic words, it was all this great mix. Um, and, and so that really for me was was the first link between language and landscape. Right, right. Uh, and then, you know, again, I come from the Lake District, so it's, it's an area with a grand romantic tradition yes. and it didn't take long for me to become aware of that. Um, so as a writer, as a modern writer, a contemporary writer, that's in the background and in a way perhaps one feels like one's working against it as much as yes, working with it course. as a heritage. Um, Was yeah. that deliberate for you? Because of course the romantic poets have, as you say, a very romantic sort of sublime notion of the landscape and it's sort of become popularised and almost become a tourist notion of, of the Lake District, whereas in your books, or certainly in your writing, that landscape is presented as very hostile and very dangerous and difficult to live in and inhospitable. Yeah, I, I do think there was a there was a kind of a revolutionary aspect to the original r romantic movement as well that we mustn't forget about. Mm. And um, certainly, I'm interested in the idea of revolution, and it comes up in the work, right, whether it's small right. kind of domestic revolution or or you know the protest of a village against a, a, an urban plan, or you know my third novel is a kind of survivalist group mm -hmm. fighting mm -hmm. against the government. So these things, you know, they're extended through the work uh, um, as I've gone on. Uh, but yeah, I, I am aware of the Lake District as a working territory, you know, mm. uh, it, it's a tough territory. Still, people farming in the old ways uh, now have a very hard time of it. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, I often get, I often get letters, apologies to anybody who's anti-wind farm here, but I often get letters, because I'm, because I'm a Lake District writer, I'm perceived that way, I get letters from uh, wind farm protesters saying, well, surely you must be on our side, you love the Lake District, it's this beautiful territory. And, and I think, have you not read the work? Right. <laughs> yes. You know, yes, it's beautiful, but for me, it's always been a working territory. Yeah. Please, yes. put up a wind farm. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but yeah, there we are. Good, okay. I'd like to talk to you about short stories. It's quite unusual for a debut writer to produce a book of short stories. They don't sell generally as well as, as, as novels, yeah. sadly. <laughs> there are no major literary prizes devoted as a short story. It's a fairly ambitious thing to do. So I wondered why you thought that the short story perhaps 
lacked critical attention and mm. merits and whether there was a disconnect in the way that maybe the majority of people actually love reading short stories but there isn't the media kind of you know credibility given to the form mm. and of course why you chose to write in a short story form yourself okay um well, i think I, there is a, a, a big prize don't you <laughs> <Is> that, <laughs> well, sorry. the national short story awards Fine. <laughs> I, mean, it have the I met the book called yeah. the red red which sorry costa which yeah. are fairly well known or you know sort of yeah. household names yeah. um yeah, I, I suppose I'll, I'll begin by saying why I wrote short stories, and it was it was quite an inadvertent thing actually. That um, I was I was asked very when I was very young to write the book, um, and I was given a very open brief of just write it. You know, Faber just said write us a book, and they didn't specify what it had to be or what form it should take or what subject. And um, I'd written a few short stories already, and. And so I just thought, well, it seemed easier to continue writing stories than to try anything else. And I thought, well, you know, I know I've managed to do that and succeed with those so far. Um, and I really, to be honest, I, I didn't have any notion of quite what a silly thing it was to do to be writing stories, you know, how sort of much prejudice there is towards them and how difficult it is to sell them and, and how, um, you know, also how lucky I was to actually have a, a publisher who were willing to let me write short stories as a debut writer. Um, and it was only sort of as I was nearing the end of the book, I, 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 mean, I did have a sort of crisis of faith thinking, good, what, what have I done, you know? Um, but... But for you as a form, do you find it sort of a more malleable way of um, writing about sort of particular scenarios or dramatising moments mm. in your characters' lives rather than the much larger, broader landscape of a yeah. novel? Yeah, well, I mean, I've, I've not written a novel, so I I don't know quite what the experience of doing that is like, but um, I've certainly, and especially you know, in the last couple of years, really grown to love the form of the short story and I, mean, I have to admit I, I didn't really while I was writing the book read many short stories I, I wasn't very clued up on short story authors and I only sort of started towards the end when I thought well, I better actually you know see what other people are doing and really just got really quite obsessed with the short, short story and, and started to feel that you, when you actually read a lot of short stories you start finding that novels just seem really sort of you know, long and <laughs> long-winded, and you just feel like, come on, get to it, and you, you can do this in just a few pages. You know, why do you have to take three hundred? Um, and yeah, I mean, I I really love that. You know, there's there's a lot of constraints that are put upon you when you write a short story, which I think I think is perhaps why a lot of people say they're more difficult to write yes. than novels. Um, as I say, I haven't had the experience of writing novels, so I'm, I can't say whether that's true or not. Um, but it, for myself, I really love those constraints, and I love that feeling that, you know, you've got to compact everything, and you've got to be very precise in what you say, and you and you don't have the space to just go on and on and, and fill out lots of lots of uh, details and characters. And, you know, you really have to be very um, almost mathematical about what you're doing because it, you've got to to think also. I mean, it, uh, this I think especially comes up in my stories, thinking about not just what you are saying but also what you're if you're looking for plump lips that last you need to know about juvederm lip fillers with juvederm volbella xc and juvederm ultra xc your lip look whether it's subtle or bold can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at juvederm.com today that's j-u-v-e-d-e-r-m.com add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with juvederm volbella xc or juvederm ultra xc do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juvederm.com. Not saying, and I find that quite exciting. I think it's why I like reading short stories, and why I suspect maybe people 
often don't like reading short <laughs> stories is that they can be more difficult in a way, I think, because I think they put more sort of um, the more strain on the reader because because things are left out. I mean, which I find really exciting because it leaves it to you. You know, it becomes your own experience as well when you're reading it. Um, but yes, I guess you have to. You know, I, I did a reading once to um, a book group and somebody was saying, "Well, why don't you tell us this?" And you know, <laughs> what was the crime that happened here? And and I said, "Well, because I, you know, I want you to work a bit. I want you to think for yourself and come up with your own conclusions." And he said, "Well, well, I don't like to write. I don't like to work when I read." <laughs> and I thought, "I guess I'm not writing for you." <laughs> but um, yeah, but I mean, what I about the idea? I mean, people would argue perhaps that you know we all live very busy lives now, mm. and our attention span sort of has shrunk and we're commuting and we're yeah. you know, rushing around and you might think the short story is perfectly suited to that mm. lifestyle but in your experience has that been borne out by the readers um, you've had? By the readers I've had um, in what respect? Well, I was wondering they... whether people sort of, whether you're aware of your readers reading your books, reading your stories because in a way it suited the lives that mm. they, because in fact it was easier to read them because they're shorter and people have less time or I whether that isn't relevant as I don't know really. Um, I mean, I, and I'm also not entirely convinced by that whole, whole argument actually, because yes, of course, you know, in, in length they're shorter and so they fit into these short amounts of time that we might have. But um, I mean, I think they, because they do take, you know, they do actually take a lot of work. Mm. And I think that, that, that in, in terms of being a reader, reading them, yes. um, mm. and it's not so easy just to, you know, you, you can sit down for you know twenty minutes and read a story, but you often have to think beyond yeah. that twenty yes. minutes. And you know maybe when you've actually got off the underground at the end of your journey, yes. <laughs> continue thinking about it. Um, so I mean I, I, I suppose yeah. They Would that be your experience as a reader of short stories? Do you think? Yeah, I do think you need to bring something to the table yourself. Mm. And, uh, I just think you need to be kind of open to a certain degree of unsettlement when you mm -hmm. when you go to a short story. Certainly, when I go to a short story, mm -hmm. I, and, and I enjoy that about them. And you know, um, my favourite short stories, Hunt, uh, Hunted in the Snow and uh, A Good Man Is Hard to Find. And these two stories that leave you, they have that toe curling quality to them. Mm -hmm. In the end, even though lots of gore is not visited upon you in the way that a novel may perhaps yeah. allow itself a kind of longer, wider a treatment yeah. of, of, of unsettlement but uh, there's something far more haunting I think about a good short story mm -hmm. um, so yeah I do think you need to or, or I when I read them need to come at them with a kind of bravery in a way yes. and that, that's not bravery in that oh I need to work while I read this because I, I don't mm -hmm. mind that at all you know I've, uh, you know I, I'm not put off yes. I don't generally read for entertainment I on the whole will read literary fiction so mm -hmm. What's happening? I don't know. You're going to work. <laughs> uh, so that's fine. But I, I do think there's a certain frame of mind that I certainly need to be in when I'm, when yes. I'm going for a short story mm, over yeah. a chapter of a novel or poetry as well. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you do need yeah. to concentrate while you're reading yeah, it you because, really because you can't, if, yeah, you, if you don't concentrate, you're going to miss you know, the whole yes. point of the story, probably, or you know, very major elements because everything is kind of, um, you know, is there for a reason and there for a purpose. Mm -hmm. And so if you're just reading it, you know, while you're doing other things and on the train, also, it, you might miss right, yes. the actual <laughs> Now, in, Gord in Gordon's absence, um, <laughs> I still think it's worth mentioning um, his body of work, which I don't know how much of you are acquainted with it, but he's very interested in the slippage between fact and fiction, and his most recent novel was a novel called um, Born Yesterday, The News as a Novel, which took the idea of the uh, news events from the summer of 2007 um, and wove them into a narrative, and nothing was made up, it was just all entirely based on factual events. And he, his style of writing raises all sorts of questions, I think, about the role of fiction in today's climate. And I think it's fair to say that a lot of people, or a lot of readers, are often sort of most interested in stories that are ostensibly true. And by that I mean, for example, misery memoirs, which is a huge phenomenon, <laughs> or st sort of media-managed stories such as Jade Goody. And I wondered, as, you know, as both of you, as writers who um, write very much from the imagination, whether you feel that there is some kind of challenge being mounted towards fiction by this sort of cultural shift, or whether fiction is actually more important now than it ever has been. Because <laughs> 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 I think there are lots of cultural challenges to 
to the novel and the short story, but mm. particularly the novel at the minute. Um, the Misery Memoir, I mean, has it really become that big? Is it really overshadowing everything? I don't know. Perhaps it's an awful it is. lot, but perhaps, perhaps it isn't. Um, it's a shame that Gordon's not here because I do think in him we have one of the most radical writers actually of, of, of the period and he is testing the bounds of what a novel is particularly with Born Yesterday I mean it, it, and, and I would have hoped that he could have been here tonight to talk about this because it is fascinating mm -hmm. this idea of what constitutes an, a novel and, and what fictional veracity is and, and what constitutes a narrative and Born Yesterday is it, it is I, I use the word radical again but it's a very radical novel mm -hmm. that way um, but there's always a balance, isn't there? Writing from the imagination and, and writing or trying to create a certain truth. Because when you enter the world of a novel, uh, what you want, I suppose, is to believe in the world uh, that you're existing in while you're within those pages. So I've always tried to... Um, in science fiction, though, I think the term is world-building. And it's a, great, it's a great expression, you know, this idea that... Um, uh, the tables of the novel are real and, and the ch mm. when somebody sits down in the chair we can feel the sitting down in the chair and that's something that I've always been keen to capture that sense of realism, hyper-realism, naturalism, whatever you want to call mm -hmm. it uh, uh, but at the same time you know you're, 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 you're handling <laughs> it is fictional veracity it's not it's not the truth of the world yes, it, it's yes. a it's a secondary bifurcated truth in a way um, so and I've never quite um, trying to analyse my own work and other people's work, I've never really quite got, been able to get to the bottom of, of how that kind of combination works. It's like mm -hmm. alchemy, really. Uh, and there's a... Particularly when you're thinking about language again, you know, the kind of heightened poetic language that you might find in some works, and certainly I think my early work, I was interested in that level of description. Uh, you would think... Um, may add to the sense of a kind of reality because you're desperately trying to describe something, perhaps over-describe it, one of the lessons for me later in, in, in my work has been actually, you know, one accurate phrasing uh, for right, something yeah. may, <laughs> may in terms of truth and accuracy work better than three right, poetic yeah. ways of describing mm -hmm. a table or a chair. Mm -hmm. uh, so there are, there are kind of lessons that you learn as you go on or, or, or um, perhaps styles that you develop uh, that are in fact trying to get to the very bottom of this notion of how do we believe this and, and yet how, how mm. do we, how do we, you know, how, how is the imagination of use in the process? Yes, yes. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. And would that be the same for you, do you think, within the, the discipline of the short story? Um, it's hard to say. I mean, I, I, yeah, as you say, I've very much written from the imagination. I have written some, I mean, some, there's some of the stories where things are taken from real life as well. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, one, one of the stories that I've written is, um, this kind of gives it away for anyone who hasn't read it, but the story Folks Like Us, which is um, is based on Bonnie and Clyde. Um, and that was quite an interesting one when I was writing it because I, <laughs> I, actually, I was lying on my bed one day and I started hearing this voice in my head. Um, and I remember I went through to my friend, who's also a writer, and was living in the room next door, and I said, I've got this voice in my head. And he said, well, whose who's voice is it? And I said, it's Clyde. It's Clyde Barrows. <laughs> and he said, well, go next door and write it down. So I did, and I started writing down this voice. Um, and, and I started, you know, he started telling this story. And, and I, didn't, I hadn't really had any interest particularly in, in Bonnie and Clyde before that. And I didn't know very much about Bonnie and Clyde beyond, you know, the basics that we know from the film and you know, history. Um, so I actually did a lot more research. And as the story went along, uh, because I was then researching much more and knew yes. much more, it gets much closer to the facts. Um, and the beginning is, is totally made up. And actually, when I was sort of revising all the stories at the end for putting them into the book, I, I actually was thinking to myself, well, should I go back and, and change the beginning now that I know because it begins with him meeting Bonnie, and, and of course that's, you know, for any Bonnie and Clyde expert, so that's, that's absolutely not how they right, met. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought, well, should I change it and make it more true to life? And in the end, I, I made the decision not to, because I thought, no, this is, this is fiction that I'm writing, and this is my um, take on the story, and this is how the story has told itself to me. Um, but it's actually interesting, because the, I, one of the things that I then found out in the research was that Bonnie Parker was also writing poetry, and was a very was very not an extremely 
great poet, but she was a very keen poet. Um, and I just thought that was an interesting fact that was not that well known. And so that was something that sort of comes up in the, in the story, and the story sort of focuses on that interest of hers. And I decided to put at the end of the story one of her poems, which lots of people, because they didn't know yes, this fact about that, her, yes. said, well, did you write it? And yes. I said, no, it's, it's Bonnie Park. Yes. Yeah, it says it's Bonnie Park. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so that was... I suppose that's... Um, about the fact of Michelin, but yeah. um, but, but also I think uh, Horsewater also obviously it's based on a real event, isn't it? I mean, you know what happened in in the valley did happen, and I know your characters are made up, but you are inspired by something real, and you are trying to imagine how, you know the real effects of that event on those people and on that landscape. And I suppose that must come with you must bring with it its own responsibilities, perhaps. Yeah, it does. Um, although you know the clearance of the valley itself. Uh, was a fairly civilised, slow affair, uh, and the novel set in 1936 and 37. I wanted to kind of dramatically compress the period in which uh, all this was going on, and um, but then you know I, I kind of, although I was aware of, of the building of the dam, and you know I kind of grew up mm. next to the dam pretty much, so there it was, and I and I knew of some people in my village that had lived in Mardell when they were younger. Um, I, I still didn't know very much about it because uh, it wasn't really talked about very much. I mean, right. it was one of these big events that didn't get talked about in the north, <laughs> you know. Or if it did, it it was kind of quietly talked about. Um, and so I was a little bit worried about using this story for my own dramatic ends. Uh, I started researching a little bit more around it, and of course, research can be good and bad. It, it'll it'll give you too many facts and, and and trying to kind of bring them in or leave them out of a narrative, uh, you know. It comes with its own problems, um, but there were some very interesting things that I discovered, like uh, new plastic new plastic explosives were tested on the old buildings in the valley uh, by the army, you know, to kind of blow up these buildings before the valley was flooded. You read something like this, and all yes. of a sudden you've got the kind of next chapter but, of your book, yeah, and, it, yeah. and it can really kind of set you off in one direction or another. So um, yeah, I was absolutely relying on facts yeah, on the yeah. one on the one hand, but. Um, Relishing fiction's ability to jump in. Absolutely, and, yeah. I just wanted to pick up on that point about true to life and research and all the rest of it. I feel mm -hmm. both the stories in your collection, Claire, that um, pick up on real life events, and particularly mm -hmm. in Horswater, um, you both wore your research very lightly. That mm -hmm. I've read several novels recently where the author has done a lot of research and has felt compelled to put all of it into those pages, <laughs> and it actually makes for not a great reading experience. Yeah. Do you find it requires a lot of discipline to leave that sort of thing out? It does sometimes. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> I mean sometimes you do. Ha you find out so many amazing facts, and you want to get them in there, and you want to tell them, and and then you do have to to um, you know real. And sometimes they go into drafts. And then you cut them out. I mean, was, there's something that I, th I think of quite often when I'm writing it, um, and which was actually something that an art teacher told me, <laughs> because I used to do a lot of art. Um, and I remember we were in a, a life class one day, and I was um, I was d I was drawing the model, and the foot on the drawing just wasn't quite right, but it was a really good foot. <laughs> and I remember my teacher coming round and, you know, he looked at it and he was quite a strange man and, and you know, I knew exactly what he was thinking that, you know, in terms of the, the whole, this foot didn't fit in there, but it was such a good foot, I didn't want to get rid of it. And, and he said, you know, sometimes you have to get rid of the foot. <laughs> and, and it was actually, I mean, it was you know, in a totally different context, but it was something that I've often thought about when I'm writing, and when, especially when you get to the editing process, of actually sometimes, you know, there are these amazing things that you've found and that you want to tell, and, but you, you can't put it all in there, and it doesn't, it doesn't work for the story. And, um, yeah, you have to sort of step back from them and keep them in your notebooks and, and hope that maybe you'll have occasions to bring them out in the past. I don't know, what did you feel? Yeah, um, I think as a kind of contemporary researcher, the, if you enjoy delving back into the past, finding out those little details, mm. which I do and I think lots of writers do, there is a tendency to kind of really fetishise the details, um, you know, whether they're kind of styles of clothing that were worn mm. or mm. the objects around a, a house, um, whatever that might be. And then you kind of have to really watch how these things are being used in the text. And it does help to have a very good editor, another kind of set of eyes, yeah. to, uh, because you will kind of lose track of it yourself as well, I think. Um, 
so it's, it, it is good to have somebody else telling you that you know that you, there's really no need to in, include the kind of three extra sentences about that clock just because you're interested <laughs> in it. And you know, you've got to think about whose perspective the story is being told through as well. A, a woman living in the 1930s wouldn't necessarily uh, dwell too much on a particular item in her life unless that item was perhaps a novel in its day, in which case she would have reason mm -hmm. to be kind of dwelling on it. You know, it could be that she's pulling on a skirt and it's a well-worn skirt and the skirt is of no interest to her other than it's a skirt. It's of interest to me because I am interested in the styles of the 1930s. Yeah. But, so, that, yeah, again, there's a, there's a kind of, you know, a, a kind of smudging in of, of narrative and fact mm -hmm. done there. Mm -hmm. okay. Any, anybody else? Yes. Sometimes I think it might be a little bit arbitrary, you know, this sort of uh, division between maybe the prose poem, the short story, mm -hmm. the novella, mm -hmm. the novel. <laughs> when you start writing something, um, do, you f do, you, uh, do you really have a concept when you start writing it, how long this thing's going to be? Or is it, can it take it on its own life? And will a short story develop into a novella, novella, de novella develop into a novel, whatever? Yeah. Um. You want to begin this time, so. <laughs> they do. I think they take on a life of their own, and, and unless you're a big planner up at the front, which I'm not, I'm kind of more of an intuitive writer, and mm. I want to kind of draw down a voice and then work with it in those early stages. So I never quite know what I've got on my hands, and have started things which have gone nowhere, have started things which have become short stories. My third novel, uh, which is quite quite a short novel may even fall into the novella category, I'm not sure, probably doesn't, probably is just a novel. I thought it was going to be a short story when I began it, um, because in my naive way I felt like I, I kind of had a, 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 a speedy narrative on my hands and I hadn't had that for the first two novels and so I associated it with a short story form, there was more going on in it and it was more pared down. Uh, but it, but it kind of kept going, kept going, didn't turn, didn't do what it was going to do, so then I thought okay well maybe it's a novella. You know, oh dear, I'm contracted in two novels, <laughs> <laughs> short stories. I've got a novella. What am I going to do? And it kept, kind of, kept going, kept going. So I do think, um, yeah, things do take on a life of their own. And you know, there, there are really short novels which we consider to be novels today. But you know, where someone in a bookshop to kind of want to put them on a shelf somewhere, they may want to call them novellas. I don't, I don't really know how these things work and how they're broken down, other than there are vague word limits dictating, mm -hmm. you know, what these things are. You sound like a man who's got several things on the go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm always surprised by the number of people who, um, you know, when I'm in the midst of writing something, and they'll, they'll be maybe talking about it in a very vague way, I don't like to talk too much about what I'm writing at the time, but they'll say, well, how long is it going to be? And I always say, well, I'll know when I finish it. <laughs> and they, they, almost as if they expect you to say, oh, it's going to be ten pages, or like, you know, as if you know these things and you don't. I mean... But when you're writing, I, do you feel a natural rhythm uh, sort of that's dictating the pace that, that sort of tells you when it's finished? Yeah. Um, sometimes. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm a bit like you. I'm not a planner, which, I mean, actually, when I, when I, I've taught creative writing as well, and I, I really, I envy those who are, and I encourage it in my students. Right, yes. I think it's a very good idea. Um, I just don't actually do it. Um, not to much of an extent anyway. Um, but yeah, I think you do get a sense of the pace when oh, you're yeah. writing and you get a sense of, you often know the kind of, you can see sort of the arc of the story of whatever you're writing okay, and, and yeah. so you sort of know when you're getting over to that point. But yeah. <laughs> Anybody else? <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> this is our editor. <laughs> right. I want to bring something up that has only been sort of obliquely referenced tonight, which is feminism. Um, yes. Yeah, it hasn't been explicitly spoken about. Um, knowing both of your work pretty well, um, I want to know how feminism, feminism um, informs your writing and... Um, especially how it differentiates between Sarah and you, Claire, because knowing um, northern feminist mythology reasonably well, but not knowing the southern version, um, <laughs> how, how does that play out, and um, what do you feel about that? Okay. <laughs> um, well, actually, it's, I'm glad now that I read that story that I did, because for me that story was always, um, I guess, the one I'd say is the most kind of 
in my mind, sort of, um, fem well, maybe not a feminist story, but more, I mean, I, it was interesting, actually, we were talking earlier about whether, um, how we viewed it in terms of being a woman writer. And I was saying that, actually, in my experience, it's, it's never been an issue for me, and it's never been something that I, I've never felt particularly sort of gendered when I write, and I don't think I write particularly gendered stories. And, and I, I remember before the book came out wondering whether there would be more of an issue about that, that, that I was a female writer. And there really hasn't been at all. I mean, I've been very interested that, you know, I don't think there's been a single review that mentioned anything about the fact that I was a female, or if only to say that the... Or not well, you know the genders swap a lot in the stories, um, but yeah, that I mean I suppose for myself, I've always felt I, I went to an all girls school and it was it was very sort of um, uh, I guess in a way I almost felt that at school we were sort of force fed feminism. I mean we'd get these very sort of feminist. Um, assemblies when we were we were always being told you know there's n I think the school motto is there's no hurdle too high and it was always sort of like you can do anything as a female and there's nothing to stop you and it almost at the, at the beginning you know for myself at that time I kind of felt well well yeah of course I know this you know and I, I and I've, I'd say I've never sort of really felt in any way limited by being a female and so I've always sort of felt in a way I'm almost a in a post-feminist situation that I feel like the feminists have already done it for me and they've won the battles and so it's just not in my life been an issue. And I suppose that's where, with that story, why I say for me it's, it's, it's a sort of post-feminist story and that, that's why the, um, uh, the, the picture was important, you know, and the, the fact that, that this girl who, um, you know, feels herself to be in a situation which I think a lot of young females do nowadays of sort of feeling that you're very much in control of things in your life and you know you can go out to a bar and pick up a guy and come home and be able to say I'm not going to sleep with you and you know I'm in control here and I think she's able to do that because of the fact that that you know the, as I say the battles that have been won and that's why she's interested in the suffragettes and she's got this picture there um, but actually what I was thinking about in the story was that in the end, the reality of it is that there they are, the situation of a man and a woman in a room. And really, despite all that sort of sense of control she has, the reality is he could do anything that he wants at that point in time. Um, and she's, she's, no, she's just as vulnerable as you know, any, any woman in, in the past could have been. Um, so I suppose... I, in terms of how feminism actually informs the stories, I guess it, it just does naturally, but just because I feel like it's just something that I, I take for granted almost, which was perhaps a bit wrong. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, what about you? You might have a, a different answer. It's really hard, isn't it? Because you, you almost sort of want to talk about what feminism is in an academic sense mm. now as well. Mm. So lots of discussions about what it is now, what it's become, what it's used for as a kind of set of tools for discussing women's issues and concerns now, uh, and not just that, but but society's concerns and issues now, because feminism didn't exclude men mm -hmm. from its discussions. Yeah. Uh, it was about society, and it still is about society. So, But I don't really want to get into an academic <laughs> debate about <laughs> feminism and what it means. Um, uh, as you've said, I also feel like I'm in a kind of post-feminist situation in terms of I've never felt hindered at all mm. uh, in my career and my writing. Um, I've always wanted to write... I've always been drawn to write about fairly strong-minded, strong-willed, flawed, uh, but capable women. Uh, because as a reader, I'm kind of, I, I have been exhilarated uh, by such characters in literature. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, what can you think? Can you tell us any characters? It's Killer Mockingbird. What's she called? Beholden to nothing, so she's not going to take any painkillers. Yeah. Great, loved that when I came across it when I was a kid. Um, Zed Zachariah was another one. Oh Anthem. yeah, I remember you writing about that. Yeah. Um, and I love these characters, and and so I do think in my work often uh, there will be kind of a, a, a feminist analysis of the work, or certainly feminism is talked about. Uh, 
because these women seem extraordinarily capable and I always think well they're not actually extraordinarily capable they're just capable and perhaps there are lots of <laughs> female characters in literature that are less capable uh, than perhaps women are in real life and, and so are we used to that in our diet of literature I don't know but um, there are so many issues here yes. I also I also quite often uh, get told that I write like a man. Well, what does that mean? I mean, this comes up time and time again, and I'm always bringing it up in interviews as well. It's like I want to talk about it, but I actually don't because I still don't know what it means, and I don't yeah. know what the qualities of a male writer are that I seem to be possessing. I really don't think I write like yes. a man. Have you? Can I ask both of you whether you've noticed whether you're reviewed differently by a male critic or a female critic? Whether that's Ever <laughs> I just wondered whether you know a male response to your work or to your work might be. No, I, I mean I've certainly invited it in my third novel because it's a debate about uh, radical feminism of the kind of 60s, 70s, and 80s. You know, mm. in a very kind of bare bones way. It's I, I did invite the kind of debate with that yes, particular yes, novel. But yes. Sorry, mm. go on. <laughs> no, I was just saying no, I don't. I don't no, feel okay, like fair, I mean, yeah, I, I was yeah very surprised by just how both. Male it and female reviewers seemed to issue. just take the book on its on its face level yeah. and didn't make an issue of that. There was one review I had where uh, a man reviewer was kind of going on and on and on about a gun that I'd chosen to use that wouldn't have fit in a futuristic rucksack whose meter size wasn't actually mentioned, and I had picked the shortest of the Second World War rifles to fit in the bag. It's not that I hadn't done my research, and I just thought. And then he kind of went on to say, "But doesn't she write about landscape really well?" And I thought. <laughs> This seems doubly unfair seeing as your editor is here, but uh, I'd conjured it up beforehand and I just wanted to know this is a favourite evening and your favourite authors and Faber are fantastic publisher, but I just wondered whether, or to what extent, if any, you felt like Faber authors. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I do. I've always felt a really strong loyalty to Faber, and I think because I, I, I'm in perhaps a slightly unusual case because I, I meet so many authors, or. or you know, writers who are desperate to be published and, and are looking for any opportunity they can, and you know, especially when you're doing things like this, they'll come to you with your manuscripts and think maybe you're going to be able to give them to your editor and get them published, and you just think, there's no way I'm going to be able to. But, but um, I, I wasn't really a writer who was... I, publication was never actually why I was writing. Um, and I don't know whether I would ever even... I, di I didn't have particularly a lot of confidence in what I was writing, and I don't know whether I'd ever got to the stage of actually thinking okay, I'm going to send this out to a publisher and see if I can get it published. I mean, I was, I had the unusual case that, that Lee, my editor, just happened to come across me when I was at university and read a story and then asked to read more and then they asked me to write this book and it was sort of like, oh, okay. Um, so I just felt like, you know, there I was, just this person writing these stories for myself and then all of a sudden they, they were the ones who sort of spotted something that they thought was of interest and they were the ones who who made me think, well, actually, maybe you're a writer and maybe that's a career you can have. And so I've always felt this incredible sort of loyalty to, <laughs> to Faber and to my editor because of that, because I feel like they really showed a lot, you know, I've got them to thank for all of it. Um, and, you know, I, 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 I've always felt very proud as well about Faber because, you know, it is sort of one of the last great independent publishers and, and you know, they're, they're quite small, so you get to, you feel you get a good sense of everybody there, and everyone's always very friendly. And and I, whenever anybody asks you know who is your publisher, I sort of like Faber and Faber, and and it's always very nice because of course everybody the world over knows Faber as well. <laughs> so um, yeah, I, I I'd say yes, I do feel like a Faber author, and I I hope that I'll always be a Faber author. So <laughs> what about you? Yeah, no, I do as well. And I had a similar experience in that I was kind of discovered by same mm -hmm. editor um, uh, early on uh, and he bought some of my poetry and then invited me to send more work to him which I did and um, he kind of worked very hard on the first couple of novels with me and I, you know he's the only editor that I've ever worked with I have other readers but he's the only editor that I've ever mm -hmm. worked with and um, 
you know, and we'll be bringing out my fourth novel with them. I can't can't really see past favour, to be honest with you. And over the years, I've kind of come to realise that they do. It's a small company and they're independent, but they represent a lot more, and they kind of fiercely guard that mm. reputation of not just excellence but innovation as well. I mean, there are you know some great innovators there at the minute who are kind of broadening the company out and you know have Faber Writing Academy now as well um, so there are kind of lots of new things happening at Faber and, and it's you know the, the kind of reputation is on the one hand this old kind of colossus in the publishing industry mm. you know tweedy men <laughs> but at the same time they're new and vibrant and always and modern and always have been that too um, I've never not been able to have very difficult conversations with uh, people at Faber about marketing know about all the things that you have to at some stage have conversations about I think if, if, um, if you're a writer uh, and there's always a great reception and, 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 and kind of give and take and, and it works really well so yeah I am I'm they're kind of fiercely proud of themselves and they should be and I'm fiercely proud of them and <laughs> <laughs> presumably you both feel that Faber's given you the chance to sort of grow as writers as well because that's yeah. you know from a commercial point of view quite often it might not make such sense these days for publishers to give authors the time they need to really develop their voice <laughs> but I'm not saying that's what you two need in particular but it's possible that that you know certainly with record companies to yeah. use an analogy yeah you know, yeah. That, you know that, that is a problem but um, and as we were talking about earlier um I, I also feel very grateful to my editor and to Faber that that they did let me take I mean I'm, I was very slow and I don't think Lee, you know, he's always joking about it I, um I don't think he ever expected that I would take as long as I did to write the book which was almost nine years <laughs> um, but I, I mean I think that was amazing that they gave me that chance and we were we were talking about whether it was strange for Sarah to, um, to be reading this book that she'd written so long ago and looking back on it um, and I was saying that if I'd if you know if, if I'd been felt that their publishers were rushing me to to get something done quickly and get it out there while I was still, you know, using youth factor, I don't think it would have been a very good book. And they had mm. the, in, the, you know, the insight to say, you know, take your time. And you know, that's what he always said, you know, just take your time. There's no pressure. The book will take as long as it needs to take, um, which it did. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I think that's very good that they allow that. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes.